All right, well, good morning, church. It's uh, Pastor Will here. And uh, listen, if you're new here today, I want to say uh, hello to you. We are so glad that you are tuning in. Like I mentioned, my name is Will, and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at High Point Church. And uh, we're just so glad that you are tuning in. Um, as you can tell, things are a little bit different today. I am sitting down, and I have a lot of water here next to me. And uh, the reason for that is because my voice isn't doing so well. And so uh, uh, if, if I get a little bit um, hard to hear, I apologize, but I would appreciate you praying for me even as I preach uh, this morning. So this morning we are in the second week of our Psalm series and our passage today comes to us from Psalm chapter 42 and 43. Psalm chapter 43, 42 and 43. Now, the reason why we are looking at these two Psalms uh, together is because what scholars and commentators say is that these, these uh, Psalms, Psalms 42 and 43, were, were written in order to be read together, in order to be sung together. Now, there's a few reasons for that. One uh, is they have the same author. Um, another reason why they are to be uh, read and sung together is because they have similar language that runs throughout each Psalm. And then the third reason is because they both have the same chorus that the songwriter repeats again and again. And so uh, this morning, that's why we are going to be looking at Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. Now, what you're going to see as we jump into this passage this morning is that this psalm, in many ways, uh, for modern readers, is an unexpected psalm, is a very unexpected psalm. And here's what I mean by that. When we jump into this passage, what we're going to see is that the writer of this psalm is an individual who is struggling and wrestling with very intense spiritual depression. He is struggling with discouragement. He is struggling with despondency. So just that in itself makes it a unique psalm, right? But what I, what I really appreciate about this psalm is that on the one hand, uh, the psalmist, he does a, a really great job uh, describing and diagnosing the symptoms and the problem. But I would argue that on the other hand, he does an even better job um, uh, it, dealing with it and pointing us, directing us to the solution. And so the, the, what psalms, what, what, uh, what scholars say, they, they describe this psalm as a lament psalm. And so the book of Psalms, there's 150 Psalms and some of those Psalms are considered lament Psalms. And so here's what I mean by uh, lament Psalms. They are Psalms in which the author is crying out to God. He is uh, mourning, he is in despair, he is uh, depressed, he is discouraged, he is despondent. Those are what the lament Psalms are. And what I find really encouraging is that all throughout the Psalms, we see various different lament psalms sprinkled throughout the entire Psalter. Now, here's the thing, and, and this is why I think a psalm like this is so important for us um, in a day like this and in a season like this, that when we look at a psalm like this, we as modern day people uh, in general and Christians in particular, I don't know if we actually have a proper theology of suffering, a, a proper theology of lamenting, a proper theology of discouragement and despondency. As a matter of fact, if, if you were to look at modern worship music, uh, there aren't a lot of songs on lamenting. There aren't a lot of songs about discouragement and depression and despondency. It's just something that we don't talk about, right? And, and, and here's the thing, the, the problem with that 
is that when we don't think about it, when we don't sing about it, when we don't have a theology for it, then when it shows up, we don't expect it. And since we kind of pretend like that, those things don't exist and we just going to act like they're not there. Since we don't think about it, sing about it, or have a theology for it, when they show up on our doorstep, we don't expect it. And so there was one uh, pastor who I heard say, and I think it was so helpful. He said, because modern day people don't have a theology for lament, they, they don't expect to be depressed. They don't expect to be discouraged. They don't expect to be sad and despondent since they don't expect it when those feelings show up or whenever we find ourselves in circumstances that cause those feelings to rise up within us. He said, what happens is what should be a single ends up becoming a triple. And so he's using baseball language. And he says that in a baseball game, you know, the batter can hit a ball and, and depending on where he hits it and depending on where the infielder gets it, it's pretty obvious that it's going to be a single, right? But what he says is that since we don't actually have a theology for it and we don't actually expect it, when the ball is hit, instead of it being a single, it ends up becoming a triple because we don't have the proper theology. And as a result, we don't have the proper response. And so Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, who is this British pastor who led at uh, a church in London for many years, uh, several, several years ago, um, he uh, wrote a book on Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. And he also preached a sermon on it. And here's what he says about these two Psalms and this concept of people uh, dealing with uh, dep spiritual depression and, and discouragement. Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, the fact remains that there are large numbers of Christian people, and I would just say people, you can say Christian, I'll just put people. The fact remains that there are, a large, there are large numbers of people who give the impression of being unhappy. They are cast down, their souls are disquieted within them, and it is because of that that I am calling attention to this subject. So, so get what, let, let me, kind of summarize what he says. He is telling his church, he's saying, listen, the reason why I am preaching on this, the reason why I am writing a book on this is because based on my observations, this is an issue that affects both Christians and non-Christians. And what's fascinating is that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was writing this decades ago. He was already seeing it be a very prevalent thing in his culture. And I would argue that it's just as prevalent today. Now, here's one thing I want to say. If you're sitting here today and you uh, do not consider yourself a Christ follower, you are uh, someone who might be considering Christianity, uh, you might be considering the things of God, but you don't really know if it's for you. Or maybe you're someone who, who used to be in church, right? You're de-churched and you're, you're on your way back. You're, 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 you're thinking about maybe coming back uh, to, to be in relationship uh, with, with Jesus, right? Depending on what camp you fall into, there are certain people who the reason why they cannot consider Christianity is because when they look at Christians, they see people with this blind faith. They see people with these fake smiles. They, they see people with this false optimism. And, and they see that and they're like, I don't know if I can live like that. I don't know if I can just act like there's nothing wrong with the world. And unfortunately, if that's you, and that's the reason why you haven't considered Christianity. I don't blame you because I've seen those very Christians. I've seen those people who act like now that you're a Christian, there should be no reason to be sad. There should be no reason to be discouraged. Everything should be sunshines and rainbows all the time. 
Uh, unfortunately, um, those people were not a accurate representation of what the Bible says, because the Bible says that we should expect suffering. The Bible says that we should expect to experience spiritual depression and discouragement and despondency. It is part of life. And so my hope is, if you give me a chance to explain that to you today, my hope is, is that as we work through Psalm 42 and 43, you are going to see that the Bible has a lot to say about those feelings of hurt and of suffering and sadness and mourning and, and, and despondency that many of us feel, especially in a season like this. So I'm gonna go ahead and read uh, Psalm 42 and 43 in their entirety. And then we're gonna go ahead and jump in. But if you have your Bibles or your phone, go ahead and go there on your app. If not, it'll be here on the screen. Here's what it says. The psalmist writes, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls the deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again. Everyone say, I shall again. I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Verse one of 43 says, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling place. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. And then he repeats the chorus again. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again, everyone say I shall again, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. It's the word of the Lord. So the title for my sermon this morning is this, and hopefully you saw me kind of highlight it as I read through uh, the passage. The title of my sermon this morning is, I shall again. I shall again. Now, the, the reason why that that's the, the title, and that's why I want to reinforce here today, is because what I want you to see is that this psalmist, as he navigates this difficult season of his life, as he, as he navigates the, 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 the despondency and the depression and the discouragement and the sadness in the morning, he, he says, I shall again praise God. In the middle of all this, I shall again. 
And so that's the, 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 the idea that I want us to be meditating on as we work through this psalm. And so what we're going to do this morning in light of that title and in light of this passage is we're going to look at this title and we're going to look at this passage under three headings. We're going to begin this morning by looking at the character. Then we are going to look at the causes. And then we're going to conclude by looking at the cure. The character, the causes, the cure. The first thing I want to do this morning is I want to begin by looking at the character. And by the character, I mean, who is the author of this psalm? Well, if you look at the inscription right before the psalm starts, here's what it says there um, at the beginning of the psalm. It says, for the choir director, a psalm of the descendants of Korah. So there's a few things that I want you to see here. First, this psalm was written to be sung because it's written for the choir director. And then it says that it's a psalm or a song of the descendants of the sons of Korah. So, so here's why this is important. And here's why I wanted to highlight the, the author, the, the main character here of this psalm. What I want you to see here is that David, is, this psalm is very unique in the sense because David is not the author of this psalm. And maybe if you're new to the Bible, you might not know this, but the majority of the psalms are written by King David. And King David was one of the three, three major kings um, in Israel. And so he writes many, if not almost all, of the other psalms. But what we see here is that this psalm is not written by David. It is written by the descendants or the sons of Korah. The question is, who were the sons of Korah? Well, the sons of Korah were descendants of a guy named Korah. Makes sense, right? And Korah was a Levite. Now, what's a Levite? Well, the, the, in ancient Israel, ancient Israel was broken up into 12 tribes. And one of those tribes was the Levites. And the Levites were very unique because the Levites were the priests. They were the Jews that worked in the temple of God, okay? Now, what's unique about the descendants of Korah, this Korah family, Korah's family, is that not only were they Levites who were priests, but they were specifically the worship leaders. They were the worship leaders at the first temple. So, so think about this. Essentially, because he was a worship leader, their role in those days was essentially the same role that many worship leaders pr- play across the country. Their role was to produce and to perform music. And this psalm is one of the psalms that we see uh, uh, that he writes, right? And, and it's funny because if, if we're being honest here, um, most churches, if, if this guy applied for a church now today and then showed the church uh, his songbook and the different songs that he's written, if a church read this today, they'd be like, you know what, man? Thanks, but no thanks, brother. We'll, we'll, we'll call you. Uh, we don't know if this is the Lord's will for you to be at our church, okay? Because the reality is, this is a very brutally honest song that he writes. And one of the things that I want to encourage you with and to make sure to stay here towards the end of the message, at the end of my message, uh, Pastor Josh is going to actually sing a song to us. It's a song of lament, very similar to this psalm where, we, where he's just brutally honest with the Lord about how, how we feel in a season like this. So make sure to be tuned in for that. But this guy, he, he's a worship leader 
And his job is to produce and to perform music. And we know that he's a singer songwriter because he obviously is writing a song here and he sung at the temple. But we also know that he was an instrumentalist because later on in the Psalm, he says that he wants to play the lyre before the Lord. Now, I'm not gonna lie to you, okay? Your boy has no idea what a lyre is, right? Everything in me wants to do this. I don't know if it's some sort of ukulele. I don't know what a lyre is, okay? But the man wanted to play the lyre before the presence of God. So more power to him, right? But what we see is that he was a singer-songwriter and he was also an instrumentalist. Now, based on the psalm, and you probably noticed this as I was reading it, what we discover is that he is in some sort of exile. He is in almost hiding somewhere. And, and what scholars uh, guess is that he was one of the Levites, one of the worship leaders that left with King David when King David was fleeing from his son Absalom. So King David, the king that I mentioned earlier, there's a, point, there's a point in the Old Testament where his son Absalom, he raises up a rebellion against his dad. And so David is forced to flee and to go into exile in order to save his life. And what commentators argue, what scholars argue, is that this worship leader, this son of Korah, is one of the people who left with David um, during that exile, during that time of, of hiding in isolation. So that is who is writing this. That is the character. The main character is a worship leader who is a Levite and the son of Korah. So now that we've looked at the character, the next thing that I want to look at this morning is I want to look at the causes. And here's what I mean by the causes. One of the things that I brought up here at the beginning is that the psalmist is dealing with spiritual depression. He is dealing with despondency. He is dealing with discouragement. And what I find so helpful about this passage is that this passage doesn't just describe the feelings that he's feeling, but it also actually identifies to us what some of the causes are. What are some of the contributing factors that have caused him to feel spiritually depressed? And from my reading of the text, I feel that there are five causes, five contributing factors that make him respond the way he's responding in this passage. The first one is that he is spiritually dehydrated. The second one is that he is emotionally overwhelmed. The third one is that he is relationally isolated. The fourth one is that he is physically exhausted. And then the fifth one is that he is vocationally unemployed. So we're gonna work our way through and see how each one of these factors have played a role in the condition that he finds himself in. And as we work our way through it, here's what I wanna encourage you with. I want you to look at your own life, evaluate yourself and see if any of these causes are, any of these factors are also present in your life. And if they are, one, two, or maybe all of them, then it helps you to ex explain why you are experiencing all that you are experiencing in this season. So the first cause was his, that he was spiritually dehydrated. He was spiritually dehydrated. Look what it says uh, in verse one and two. It says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Then verse nine says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Now, here's what I need you to see. The word there, pants, in, in, in verse one, here, it literally means to yearn for something, to desire something. It means to crave something intensely, right? Then the word thirst literally means 
to be thirsty to the point of dehydration. So it's not like he's just parched. He is thirsty to the point of dehydration. And then in verse nine, when he brings up the idea of why have you forgotten me, um, that word there, forgotten, it, it literally means to be ignored. Uh, it means to be overlooked. It, it, it means to feel like someone is not taking care of you in an adequate way. So, so based on the language that he's using, here's what I need you to know. This man, he was spiritually dehydrated. He was spiritually dry. And here's, here's how we know. Because one of the mistakes that people make, and Christians are guilty of this a lot, but I would say we're really guilty when it comes to this verse. Verse one, where it says, as the deer pants for the waters, right? Man, people love that verse. So my soul longs after you, O Lord, right? You see that on, on, on cards and you see that on mugs and you see that on Hobby Lobby fr frames. And, and, and when people see that, what they assume, their mental picture is of this guy who is sitting at a desk and his Bible is open and his notebook is open. He's got his coffee ready and he just wants to taste and see the Lord again. Just another wonderful day and a wonderful devotional with the Lord. The problem is when you do that, you are completely ripping this verse out of context. Because when you read this verse through the lens of the rest of the passage, there is no way that that's what he's thinking. And here's why. Let me, let me give you some background here about deer and about the Middle East. Deer are not like camels, okay? Camels can drink water and go without drinking water for several days and in some cases for several weeks. Deer are not like that. Deer are, such, are created in such a way that they need water on a daily basis. So one of the things that you know about a deer is that wherever you see a group of deer, you know that not too far away from there, there is some water source because deer need to be rehydrated on a daily basis. So when he says, as the deer pants for the water, literally as the deer dies of dehydration, he's not talking about this cute little Bambi deer who, uh, uh, you know, is just really thirsty. He drank in the a.m. and now it's five o'clock and he's, and he's, you know, really, really thirsty. No, no, no. He is describing a desert wasteland where there's literally been a drought and every single water source has run dry. The, 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 sp the spring and the creek and the riverbed have all gone completely bone dry. And this, this deer has nothing to drink. And as a result, he is dying of thirst. He is dehydrated, okay? That's what this picture is actually means. This is what he's actually trying to say. He is saying, God, I am thirsty for you, but when I go looking for you, I don't feel you. I don't sense you. And my, my, literally my soul is dehydrated. I am dying of thirst. I have no idea where you have gone. Which is why I read verses one and two in conjunction with verse nine, because he feels what he is saying when he says that as the deer pants for water, so my soul long, you know, pants for you. What he is saying is that God, I feel like you have forgotten me. I feel like you have forsaken me. I feel like you have abandoned me. I feel like you have deserted me. That's what he feels like. I don't, know if, I don't know if you're feeling that right now. I know that I've had moments like that. I'm gonna be totally honest with you. Today has been a really crappy day. And my voice and the whole thing, I, I had a moment with God. And this Psalm is more, I don't, I don't, I don't, really, I don't really know if God's, you're gonna get anything out of it. But this, this Psalm is for me today. Like, 
Because I, this morning, when my voice was messing, messing up and I was getting so mad at myself and mad at God, man, I felt forgotten. I felt forsaken. I felt abandoned. I felt deserted. I was like, God, what are you doing, man? I'm here to preach for you. And then you take my voice right now, right now you take my voice. And so, man, I, I feel that sometimes. I, I, I literally felt that a few minutes ago. I, don't, I hope that this encourages you in some way that I'm not a perfect person and neither was this psalmist. And we're going to go through spiritually dry seasons. That is going to happen. But here's what I need you to see. And this is what encourages me so much about this psalmist. The psalmist, he understands that he is spiritually dry, but even in the midst of that, he never, he never doubts the source. Never doubts the source. He never doubts that what his soul ultimately needs is God. He says, just like deer needs water, my soul needs God. He never doubts the source, even in the middle of all of it. He never doubts that what he desperately needs is God. So I love the idea of God being compared to water, that God is like water to our souls. He's like, like our souls are like deer and God is like water and we desperately need it on a daily basis to, 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 to thrive and to live and to flourish. And the reason why I love that is because in the New Testament, Jesus says that he is the living water. He tells the woman at the well, if you drink from me, you shall never thirst again. She, she was going out and trying to satisfy that thirst with men. She kept dating different men, trying to meet that need. And Jesus says, I am the living water. And once you drink from me, there's no need to go to any other water because I am the water that your soul desperately needs. Man, think about that. If it's almost like, just like we, God has created us. There's, there's, there's fresh water and there's salt water, right? Fresh water is good for us. Salt water is terrible for us. But what's crazy is they both look very similar on the surface. And it's not until you taste them that you know there's something different. Man, and some of us, right now, we feel like we are on a boat somewhere and all, we're surrounded by just salt water. And we're saying, God, where is the fresh water of your presence? Like, where are you right now? My soul is dehydrated. I am parched. I am spiritually dry and I need you. Your soul is different from any other part of your person. Your soul can only be satisfied in God alone. And Pastor John Orberg, look what he says about your soul. He says, the soul seeks God with its whole being because it is desperate, uh, because it is desperate to be whole, the soul is God smitten and God crazy and God obsessed. My mind may be obsessed with idols. My will may be enslaved to habits. My body may be consumed with appetites, but my soul will never find rest until it rests in God. Amen. Amen to that. Because what he's saying is your soul it has been created in such a way that there's only one source. There's only one water source that can satisfy the thirst of your soul. And man, what I love about this psalmist is that he doesn't pray for relief from his circumstances. He prays for reconnection with his creator. Okay, I, I don't want you to miss that. He doesn't say, Lord, give me relief from all these things that are terrible. He does, he's not praying for relief. He is praying for reconnection. He's not praying, uh, playing, uh, pr praying for the suffering to end. He's, like, he's not praying for, re for relief from the suffering. He is praying for reconnection with the Savior. What if I told you that what you need right now, how many of us right now are convinced that all I need is for this quarantine to end? And once this quarantine is over, I'm going to be better and everything's going to be great and my soul's going to be satisfied. I would argue that that's not the case. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, I would argue that that is not the case. What you need right now is not less quarantine. What you need is more Jesus. 
You don't need less circumstances. You need more Christ. And the more you get and drink from the living water, the more you will be satisfied and you will realize that what you ultimately needed was not relief from your circumstances. What you needed was reconnection to your Savior. So the first thing we see is that he is spiritually dehydrated. The second thing we see is that he was emotionally overwhelmed. Emotionally overwhelmed. Look what it says in verse three. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Then he says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So the second thing we see, the second cause is that he was emotionally overwhelmed. And what we see here in verse seven is that he uses another water image, another water illustration. He used water before. He compared water to God. But now he's comparing water to his circumstances. He's comparing water to his overwhelming circumstances. He says that deep calls the deep at the roar of your waterfalls. And he says, all your breakers and all your waves have gone over me. So don't miss what he's saying. The psalmist is telling God, I am so overwhelmed. I am so emotionally overwhelmed that I feel like I'm drowning. I feel, there's two examples he uses. I feel like I am under a waterfall and the waterfall continues to land on me and I can't get a break. I'm being crushed and I'm being taken under by the waterfall. Or the other example, he uses the idea of waves. It says it's almost like he's in water. He's trying to swim to shore and every time he gets close to shore, he gets dragged back. So he's saying, emotionally, God, I feel like I'm drowning. I feel like I'm being dragged under the currents of your waves. I feel like I am dying. Man, I don't know about you guys, but in this season, I have felt that way in many seasons of my life. But really, especially in this season, you, you feel like you're drowning. You feel like you're being dragged under. You get a breath and before you know it, you're back under another wave. Man, if you've ever felt that way, take, take comfort in the fact that you're not the only one. This, this guy from 3,000 years ago, this songwriter was experiencing the very same thing that you're experiencing right now. The other thing I want you to see though, and I think this plays a role in us getting emotionally overwhelmed, is that if you look at the language that he uses, he uses personal pronouns over 50 times. I think one of the things that contributes to our emotional, being feeling emotionally overwhelmed is that we can be so self-centered that we stop being God-centered. And he is so self-centered in this section that if you count how many times he uses personal pronouns, the I, me, my, he uses over 50 personal pronouns. But then when you count how many times he mentions God, he only mentions God 20 times. So 50, 20. That's one of the reasons why we're emotionally overwhelmed because we are so focused on ourselves sometimes. Even our prayer lives is all about me and my and I and me and my and I. And our personal pronouns outweigh and outnumber what we say about God. So I want to encourage you with the fact that if you're sitting here today, maybe that's one, what the biggest thing you can learn that just to change the way you pray and change the way you talk and go from being self-centered to being God-centered. And, and here's the thing about his emotion. On the one hand, he knows God in his head. He knows truths about God in his heart, in his head. But just because he knows them in his head, he doesn't mean he feels them in his heart. So for example, he knows that God hasn't forgotten him. He, he has enough theology to know that God has not forgotten him. 
But even though he knows that in his head, it doesn't mean that he feels that in his heart. And, and you, if anyone here who's been married, knows, who's in a, ever been married, been in a, in a relationship, you know what that's like, right? You, there's moments as a spouse where you know your spouse love you, loves you, but just because you know it, it doesn't mean that you feel it. You might know it in your head, but you might not feel it in your heart. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, look, God, I know these things. I just don't feel it right now, right? And here's the other thing that I want to encourage you with. He describes it as your waterfalls, your breakers, and your waves. In other words, he is saying to God, God, these, these things that are overwhelming me, as much as I don't like them, I know they belong to you. I know that you are sovereign over my waterfalls. You are sovereign over my breakers. You are sovereign over my waves. These things that are overwhelming me are from you. And the reason why that's encouraging is because it means that if, if God is in control of those, if they belong to God, then that means God is using those waterfalls, those breakers and those waves for his glory and for your good. And the last thing I'll say about his emotions is this. In this passage, he, is not a, he has emotions, obviously, right? And what I need you to know, and sometimes in Christian, in Christian circles, and again, if you're sitting here today and you're someone who are st- you're still considering Christianity, maybe the reason why you, again, haven't considered Christianity is because it almost feels like to be a Christian, you have to be emotionless. Like you're, you're like joy uh, from the movie Inside Out. If you're not joy, you can't be any other emotion. But what I want you to see is that this psalmist is very expressive with his emotion, extremely expressive. But... It's, here's what I want you to know. It is totally fine to have emotions, but you should never let your emotions have you. Let me say that again. It is fine to have emotions, but your emotions should never have you. And one of the things that we struggle in our modern day, during the Enlightenment period, one of the, the phrases, the phrase that summarized the Enlightenment period was, I think, therefore I am. In the Enlightenment period, it was all about your head. It was all about how you think. Your thinking was your first line of defense, Right? Well, in our culture, it's the complete opposite. Instead of, I think, therefore I am, I am. Our culture is all about, I feel, therefore I am. And what I need you to see is that emotions, you can have emotions, but your emotions should never have you. It's okay for emotions to be prominent, but your emotions should never be preeminent. So that's the second cause of his depression and discouragement. The third cause of his issue is that he was relationally isolated. He was relationally isolated. Look what it says uh, back in the passage. I'm going to begin reading in verse three again. It says, my tears have been my food day and night uh, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? He's talking about his enemies there, right? Then in verse four, it says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to be to the house of God with shouts and songs of praise a multitude keeping festival. So the second cause, the second contributing factor to his discouragement is that he was relationally isolated. This was an individual who was struggling relationally and he was struggling relationally at two levels. He was struggling because he was isolated from his friends, but he was also struggling because he was isolated from his enemies. What I want you to see, and I think this is such a important point in the season that we find ourselves in, He didn't just miss God, he missed people. He missed fellowship. He missed community. He he missed being with other people. In other words, one of the reasons why he was struggling was because he was lonely. And how many of us, that's exactly how we feel right now. It's not just that we feel like God is distant, but because we are practicing 
God sometimes feels like he's practicing social distancing, right? And we feel like he's really far away. But because we are practicing social distancing, we don't just miss God, we miss people. And that loneliness can be so, so hard to navigate, so hard to manage. And here's what I need you to see. Sometimes in those moments when we do feel discouraged, when we do feel depressed, when we do feel despondent, we should turn to people even more in those seasons. But our tendency, if we're being honest, is to isolate ourselves and it only makes things worse. And then when you look at his enemies, he says that his enemies called him out. It was enemies calling him out and attacking him and attacking him and attacking him. Here's what I need you to know about these enemies. These enemies, and we don't know who these enemies are in this passage. Maybe it was people that were in Absalom's camp, you know, people who were looking for him. Who knows who the enemies were? But here's what I want you to know. Sometimes when we're going through moments of uh, spiritual depression and discouragement, sometimes our enemies can be the people closest to us, our spouse, our friends, our family, our parents, our pastor, people who come alongside you. And instead of meeting you in your hurt, they just try to get overly spiritual and they try to just preach to you. They try to just give you theological answers when really you're, you're dealing with a multidimensional, multifaceted problem. And many times those people, if they're not careful, they can sound like Job's friends. In the book of Job, Job is going through all this stuff and his friends are all trying to over-spiritualize everything that Job is exper Job's experiencing. You're experiencing it because of this. Maybe it's sin in your life. That's one of the things I want you to see about this guy. He's not struggling spiritually because he is, he's sinned. There's nothing about sin anywhere in this passage. Later on in Psalm 51, when David sins against God, he is struggling with a lot of these things, but it's because he sinned, he committed adultery. There's not one indication that this man has sinned against God, and yet he is dealing with spiritual dryness. But Christians, if you're not careful and you go up to someone and you try to overly spiritualize what they're going through and you try to say, oh, it might be because there's sin in your life, you're acting more like, instead of acting like a brother or sister, you're acting more like Job's friends. And what's interesting is at the end of jo the book of Job, God's not mad at Job, he's mad at his friends. And Job has to intercede for his friends because his friends gave such bad advice. So parents, friends, family, uh, uh, coworkers, whoever it is, make sure that when someone is going through this, yeah, you want to tell them truth, obviously, but you make sure you meet them where they are and make sure you let them process what they're feeling because you could end up being an enemy instead of being a friend. It says in the passage that the, the enemies say to him, uh, where is your God? Where is your God? Now, here's what's fascinating about that. You would think that that means the enemies are atheists, right? Oh, they, well, they must be atheists if they're asking where God is. But in those days, atheism wasn't a thing. These were people who believed in other gods. These were people who believed in other religions. How many people right now, maybe you're going through this. Maybe, maybe that's why you're tuning in. Maybe because of the coronavirus and everything that's going on, you're mad at God. Even though you might not even know if you believe in God, you might be more of an agnostic. You're like, you know, where is God? Where is this God? If, if God really loves us, why isn't he here right now? If God really is in control, why would he allow all these people to, to die? And maybe you're a Christian and you're getting questioned and interrogated by a non-Christian in your life about this. Here's what I would say. And here's what I need you to understand. That non-Christian Again, it might be you listening right now. You may not believe in the God of the Bible, but you better believe that you believe in some God. There is some God that you are worshiping. We are created to worship. Like we said last week, we are created as sheep to have a shepherd. So you better believe that you have a God. The question I would ask you is, where is your God? If your God is your career, if your God is your success, if your God is your appearance, if your God uh, is uh, uh, an addiction, where is your God? And I think the same question can be thrown back. And I would love for you today to evaluate 
Who is my God? What am I really worshiping? What am I really trusting? What am I really putting my hope in? And how reliable is my God in a season like this? So that's the third thing. The fourth thing we see is that he was physically exhausted. He was physically exhausted. Look what it says in the passage. Um, I keep reading verse three, but it's just, there's a lot there. He says, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Then he says, by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So here's what I need you to see based on those two verses. This was an individual who was physically exhausted. One of the contributing causes, one of the contributing factors to his spiritual depression and discouragement is that he had physical exhaustion. And it says there that he wasn't, he wasn't eating, he wasn't sleeping. And one of the things that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, who before he became a pastor, he was a clinical physician. He says that when you're in a season of depression and despondency and discouragement, you can actually get to a place where you don't eat and you don't sleep and all your eating and thinking revolves around the discouragement, revolves around the, the depression. And he says, in his, again, I just love the fact that he's so medical about it. He looks at it from the medical perspective. He says that Christians can be so quick to, to just say, it's just a spiritual problem. Oh, you're struggling? It must be spiritual. He said, let's not be so quick to go to the spiritual. There might be some physical components. He says that there are certain things that contribute to our depression. There are certain things that contribute to our mood and to our discouragement. He said, one of them is your temperament. In other words, there are some people who are biologically, uh, chemically imbalanced and struggle with it just because of their temperament and, their chem and because of how they're chemically uh, made. Another one, he says, could be the time of the year. You know, how many, how many people will go through seasonal depression? Like when winter comes, you go through this and you can't even help it. It's like one day you just wake up and for the rest of winter, there's just something off, right? There's something wrong. You can't even control it. He says that's so it's the time of uh, the year. He also said it could be the time of the month. And I, I'm not going to get into that. I'm not trying to get slept uh, when I get home, but that, that's another one. And he says another thing is that it can be a spiritual attack. He says that the enemy can actually be attacking you. And so he says those are all different contributing factors that we don't take into account. And if we jump too quickly to just spiritual stuff and lose the miss, miss out of the fact that we are also physical beings, we might not deal with the issue at the level that it needs to be dealt with. And essentially, here's what I need you to know. Your physical reactions are like lights on a dashboard, right? Sometimes it's your physical reactions to things that helps you see there's something wrong. If the light is flashing, then all of a sudden, you know you got to look under the hood. That's what our physical symptoms do for us. You know, one of the stories I think of is 1 Kings uh, 19. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah has just finished make, doing this amazing thing for the Lord. He, he stood up to the prophets of Baal and he, 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 he was incredibly uh, uh, faithful to God in that moment. And then he, he finds out that he, he's going to be killed, right? That there's a, essentially a, a, a hit out on his, on his name. And uh, he, he gets depressed and he gets discouraged and he gets despondent. He goes off to this, uh, uh, you know, isolated place. And he essentially doesn't even want to live anymore. He, he's talking about not wanting to live anymore. And an angel of the Lord shows up. And here's what's fascinating. The angel of the Lord doesn't give him a Bible verse. Uh, the angel of the Lord doesn't give him a pep talk. The angel of the Lord doesn't uh, uh, give him a, a Christian podcast to listen to. He gives him food, drink, 
and a nap. He says, have a snack and take a nap, right? That's all he says. That's all, that's all the angel of the Lord does. It's the only time that you see an angel bringing food to someone. He gives them food, gives them a snack, and he gives them a nap. And he says, be blessed, right? Why? Because he knew, God knew, the angel knew that it was a physical thing. He was hungry and he was tired. So what we see is that there's also a physical component to this as well. And then lastly, the, the last um, uh, cause is that he was vocationally unemployed. He was vocationally unemployed. Now, here, what, what do I mean by vocationally unemployed? Now, a lot, of, a, a lot of commentators that I read didn't talk about this, but I think it's an important thing to talk about um, in this season. Think about it. I said that he was a worship leader at the temple of God. So by default, the moment he left with David into exile, now all of a sudden he cannot do the job that he was supposed to do. That's why it says in verse four of 42, it says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession. He's talking about praise. He's talking about how I remember my job. He, he lost his job. He is currently unemployed. And that's one of the reasons why he's struggling. It's one of the reasons why he's wrestling, okay? So, 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 so think about this. It, I, I, we think that, you know, maybe you're not a churchgoer, but here at High Point, man, we, I am convinced that we have some of the best worship in all the nation. And when, when, we, when we worship, we worship. But I can tell you, the Jewish temple and the Jewish people on specific feasts that would happen throughout the year, they put all of us to shame. That's why he talks about how there was a throng in a procession. They wouldn't sit down and then a worship leader would get up and start singing. They, the party would start outside. They would be tailgating, yo. And after the tailgate, then they would do like a big uh, uh, conga line and everybody would be singing and, and, and praising the Lord. It was, an, it was a party. It was a party parade, okay? This guy was the head of that. He was leading those people in worship as they entered into the temple. And he's saying, I now am unemployed. I don't have a job anymore. I, I, don't, I don't have a job. And man, how many of you right now Maybe your, your, your hours have been lowered or maybe you've been furloughed or maybe you've been laid off or maybe you've been fired or maybe you've been put into early retirement. How many of you are right now struggling with unemployment? And one of the things that happens when you, when you, when you lose your job is you feel like you, you're miss, you don't have a purpose. You don't have a calling. You, don't have, you feel directionless. You feel rudderless. Like what, what am I if I am not that? And I would argue that, and anyone who's a worship leader or a pastor can relate to this, I would argue that for people in ministry, it's actually another level to it. I actually came across an article that said that pastors, uh, many pastors go into depression after they retire. Because when they retire, not only are they losing their calling, but they're also losing their community. That, that community that they've been pastoring for all these years uh, is gone now because they got to move on and let the other guys step in. So not only do you lose your calling, but you lose your community. And so it's a really, really hard thing. And so if you're sitting here today and one of the reasons why you're down is because you're unemployed, man, I want you to know that even back here, 3,000 years ago, there was an individual struggling with unemployment and wrestling with those questions of what is my purpose? What is my worth? What am I here for? But here's what I want you to encourage you with. Praise be to God that the gospel is not about what we do for him, but the gospel is about, a, about what he does for us. So those are the five causes, the five causes. And I want to conclude this morning by looking at the cure. So we've looked at the character. We've looked at the causes. And I want to conclude by looking at 
the cure. Look what it says um, in verse five of 43. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again. Everyone say, I shall again. I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So, so here in verse five, and he does this three times. I'll talk about that more in a second. He brings it up in 42 verse five, he says this. In 42 verse 11, he says this. And then in 43 verse five. So three times he repeats the same chorus. And in this chorus, there is a two-part response. There is a two-part cure that he provides for his uh, spiritual depression, despondency, and discouragement. And the first thing he does is he questions. And then the second thing he does is he preaches. The first thing he does is he questions. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you go back to the verse, look what it says in the verse, right at the beginning of, 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 verse, of verse five. You could go ahead and go back to that. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? The, the word there, cast down, that phrase there, cast down, it literally means to have nothing left. It means to be crushed. It means to disintegrate, right? So why are you disintegrating on my soul? Why are you crushed? Why do you have nothing left is what he's asking himself. And then he says, why are you in turmoil within me? The, the, the word there, turmoil, it means uh, uh, to have an uproar, uh, to, to be restless, to, for there to be, uh, 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 yeah, essentially a it means to be uh, turmoil, to be restless, right? It's like this, this commotion, this commotion that you cannot stop within you. Like your body can be at rest, but there's a, there's a commotion within you. He, he's talking and he says, look, soul. He, I love this, guys. He questions his soul. He says, what are you doing, soul? Like, what, what, what's going on here? Like, what, 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 what's happening? He questions his soul. Well, man, how many times in, in, do, do we in moments like this, in moments of suffering and of, and of discouragement, man, we ask God why all the time. Why, God? Why, why, why? But we never think about asking ourselves why. Have you ever thought about questioning yourself? In our world, you're like, you can't question yourself. Well, I would say that we question ourselves more than we think, but we question ourselves in all the wrong areas. We, we question our potential, we question our calling, we question our faith, but we never question our souls. We never question our emotions. We never we're so cynical with everything else, but for some reason, when it comes to how we feel, we just buy into it hook, line, and sinker. Our soul starts preaching and we're like, amen and amen, right? Some of y'all will never amen me in church, but you amen your soul every single day. All right, so, so, so here's what I love about this. He expects for there to be sadness. He expects for there to be depression, spiritual depression. He expects for there to be uh, uh, discouragement. But listen to this, just because he expects it, it doesn't mean it's an excuse. Let me say that again. Just because it's an expectation, it doesn't mean that it's an excuse. In other words, just because he knows that it's going to be a temporary guest, it doesn't mean that you have to make it a permanent roommate, okay? Sadness and depression and, and despondency and discouragement are going to visit your house. But just because they are unexpected guests doesn't mean they should become a temporary roommate. In other words, he goes from self-pity to self-evaluation. He literally goes from being inward focused to being upward focused. He's like, whoa, 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 hold on, so. Here's what's funny, guys. I'm going to talk to you about my own struggle, okay? 
I am super gospel-centered when I preach from this, from this stage and from this pulpit, right? But in the pulpit of my heart, in the pulpit of my soul, I am not gospel-centered at all. I constantly am telling myself I am not enough. I'm not, I'm not smart enough. I'm not wealthy enough. I'm not uh, 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 skinny enough. I'm not, I'm not whatever enough. I'm not good enough, whatever it is. It's, I'm constantly, constantly preaching law to my soul all the time. I'm very gospel-centered when I preach publicly, but privately, I'm not. And you would think that I would catch it, but many times I amen my soul. I'm like, amen, so amen, amen, so preach, preach, so I fall right into the trap. Man, and now what I want you to know is that for me, I don't know about you, but a lot of times my soul is like the evening news. Like the evening, you know how the evening news only has bad news? My soul is like the evening news. It's only bad news. And man, I, I buy into it hook, line, and sinker. I would argue that not only should we question our, our, our discouragement and our despondency and our sad moments, I would argue that we should question anytime we have an overreaction to anything. Anytime you have an overreaction, anytime you find yourself overly happy, overly defensive, overly angry, like whatever you're overly anxious, whatever emotion you feel too much of, and whatever emotion feels like, oh, I feel like I'm overreacting, you should always question that emotion and say, so what, what's going on right now? Like, where is your hope actually found? Because I'm convinced that the only thing that should make, the, the thing that should make you the most joyful is our savior. And the thing that should make you the most sad is, our sin, is your sin. So if, if there's anything other than those two things on, the, on either side of that spectrum, then there's probably an idol in your life and something that you're placing your hope in that you shouldn't be placing your hope in. So Martin Lloyd-Jones speaking on this, again, like I told you, he, he preached a sermon, uh, multiple sermons, and he wrote a book on this. In his book, he brings up this idea of questioning yourself. And here's what he says. He says, have you not realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you in the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment, he's talking about this, was this. Instead of allowing self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. The main art of the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself. Preach to yourself. Question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What, what business have you to be disquieted? Exhort yourself and say to yourself, hope thou in God instead of muttering in the depressed, unhappy way. And then he says, and then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God, and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the problem is that we passively listen to ourselves more than we actively speak to ourselves. That's what he is saying. So the first thing the psalmist does is he questions himself. The second thing that the psalmist does is he preaches to himself. He tells himself, hope in God, for I, will, I shall again praise him. But what I need you to know, and this is why my main point this morning, the title of my sermon this morning is I shall again. This brother has to preach the gospel to himself three times. Three times he has to say it. He says it one time and then he goes right back into the depression and the discouragement. Then he says it again and then he goes right back into the depression and the discouragement. He has to say it three times. And what I love about that is that it's so realistic. That's exactly what our lives are like. We, we need to keep 
preaching to ourselves. We are going to go through hard moments. We are going to go through valleys. We are going to go through doubt. But we have to get to a place where our response will be, I shall again praise him. I shall again trust him. I shall again place my faith in him. And this is why I love that he questions himself first. Because in order to be a good preacher, you have to listen first. If you don't listen well, you can't preach well. You have to diagnose the problem before you provide a solution. He, he listens to himself. He figures out what's bothering him. And then he preaches the gospel to the part of his soul that is not believing the truth of the gospel. It's, it's like I heard the illustration of a boulder. You can put dynamite on top of a, a boulder and try to blow it up. And maybe part of the boulder will blow up. But if you really want to blow up a boulder, you got to drill and Side of it and put the dynamite inside of the boulder, and then when it explodes, the whole boulder explodes. That's what it is to preach the gospel to yourself. You question yourself, you figure out where the lie is, and then you drill the hole and you put the gospel right there and let the, 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 the explosion of God's love and God's grace and God's mercy and God's faithfulness re- completely destroy that boulder of depression, of discouragement, and of despondency. Man, what I love about it is that in, in the, first, the first thing he does, questions, is very reactive, right? He's very reactive. He's questioning himself. But then in the next one, he is proactive. He's preaching to himself. And with the first one, he's dealing with the fruit of discouragement, with the first step. With the second step, he's dealing with the root of it. He's preaching the gospel to the root of the problem. And here's what I need you to know. If this man, he says that I will hope in God, my save, my salvation and my God. Listen, if this man had reason to rejoice, if this man had reason to hope in God, how much more do you and I have reason in this season? He's looking forward to a savior that hadn't arrived yet. You and I, we get to look back to the gospel of Jesus and we know that we get to look back on God's faithfulness. Not forward, we get to look backward. One of the things that he says here in verse 1 of 43, he says, vindicate me, O God, and defend my case. He, he compares himself with the other wicked people. And here's what he says. He says, Lord, vindicate me. Judge between me and them. But here's what's so foolish about what this man is saying. He is no better than the enemies. He is no more righteous than the enemies. He is no more faithful than the enemies. God can't judge between him and the wicked. He can't judge between him and the unfaithful because the psalmist is just as sinful as the other people are. If God brought vindication, if God brought judgment, he would die along with the rest. Man, but here's what's beautiful about the gospel. What's beautiful about the gospel is that the reason why we aren't ultimately going to get judgment, the reason why, if, well, at least if you place your faith in Jesus, the reason why we are not ultimately going to get judgment and, 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 and have a, the case settled against us is because in this passage, church, in this passage, this man, he feels deserted. But there was one man who was deserted. In the passage, he feels forgotten. But there was one man who was forgotten. In this passage, he feels abandoned, but there was one man who was abandoned. In this passage, he feels like his friends have turned his back on him. In the, later on, that, that man will have his friends turn his back on him. In this passage, he cannot see or feel the face of God. This other man was going to experience the exact same thing. What he felt, which really wasn't true of him, was going to be true of someone else. What he felt was going to be true of someone else. And the question is, who is that person? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus is that person. 
That's the reason why we don't get vindicated and judged because Jesus took the vindication. He took the judgment. He took the death sentence. So what we feel, he actually experienced. Look what it says in John chapter 12. In John 12, it says, now is my soul troubled. Okay, now this is Jesus talking. And Jesus is talking to the disciples. He says, now is my soul troubled. And here's why this word troubled is so important. Because the Old Testament, what we were just reading in Psalms, is written in Hebrew, okay? So because it's written in Hebrew, the words that we see are all obviously from translated from Hebrew to English. But several, I don't know how many years ago, several, let me say a thousand years ago, there was, there was uh, something called the Septuagint. And what the Septuagint was, it was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, of the Hebrew Old Testament. What's crazy is when the psalmist says, um, he says, why are you in turmoil within me? That Greek word turmoil is the same Greek word that Jesus Christ uses in John chapter 12, verse 27. Jesus does the same thing the psalmist says. He says, now is my soul troubled. He, he questions himself, he examines himself, and he determines that his soul is troubled, okay? But unlike this man who then proceeds to say, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, Jesus instead says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So, so don't miss this. Jesus has a soul that is troubled. He has a soul that is distressed. But unlike the psalmist, he doesn't get to turn to God. He doesn't have that hope because Jesus knows that in order for us to not be rejected, he was going to have to be rejected. In order for us to not be forsaken, he was going to have to be forsaken. In order for us to see God's face, he was going to have to not see God's face. Come on, church. That's beautiful. That's crazy. Someone needs to hear this today. Right now, someone needs to hear this today. The psalmist talks about how he wanted to see the face of God. I want to see the face of God. Well, praise be to God that in the gospel, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we are told that the, the glory of God is displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. We can see the face of God right now. We can see the face of God. And so the next time you feel discouraged, the next time you feel despondent, the next time you feel depressed, I want you to look at your soul and I want you to preach to your soul. I want you to look at your soul and say, soul, his grace is sufficient for us. His grace is sufficient. His, his power is made perfect in our weakness. Soul, if he is for us, who can be against us? So, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Come on, so. Preach to your soul. Preach to your soul. That's what we get to do now because of the gospel. Man, I shall again praise him. We're going to go through difficult things. We're going to go through hard things, but I shall again praise him. I shall again go to the throne of grace. I want you to go to the gospel. I want you to go there. I want you to stay there. I want you to live there. I want you to eat from it. I want you to drink from it. I want you to meditate on it until, until your heart is melted and your soul is satisfied. Listen, if you're sitting here today and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus yet, if you're sitting here today and you're feeling this discouragement, this despondency, this depression, you know exactly what I'm describing. 
but you just don't know where to go, I can tell you where you can go. You can go to Jesus, the only water source, the only solution. I shall again praise him. Maybe for you, you won't again, but this might be the first time you do it. I shall praise him for the first time. I pray that today would be the day that you place, you say, Jesus, I no longer want to live for myself. I want to turn to you, my savior, my God, and my only source. If that's you, if you want to place your faith in Jesus, if you want to start a relationship with Jesus today, I would love for you to text High Point to the number 97000. And when you text that number, you're going to get a link back. Click on that link and you'll be able to then tell us if you want to know more about Jesus, if you want to pray to receive Jesus, if you need prayer for something. But make sure that you respond today because only a believer can say, I shall again, praise him. Let's pray. Father God, we, uh, <clears throat> we thank you for who you are. And God, I, I'm just so, <sighs> thank you, God. Thank you. <sighs> thank you for getting me through this. And uh, you know that it was a hard week and you know that it was a hard morning. And I thank you that you did that to me so that I could, uh, my voice is going again now. You got me through it. And man, thank you for just getting me through it, Lord. And for helping me in this season. turn to you. And uh, Lord, I thank you that, uh, that as a sinner and as a broken person, I need your word and I need your gospel just as much as anyone else who's listening does. And so I pray God that today would be the day that for the first time, someone shall praise you for the first time today and shall worship you and know you for the first time today. And for those of you who already know you, that today would be the day that they shall again praise you again. Thank you for reminding me and I pray that you reminded someone else this morning. We love you, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.